listening to a Better Mousetrap podcast, a joint production with Far From TV. Before we dive into today's episode, we are proud and grateful to present this week's sponsor. ModoWord is the world's fastest human translation platform. Their 14,000 professional translators give you translations of any content in any language pairing that are accurate, human-performed, proofread, and client-ready. All this at half the price and 20 times the speed of any other human translation agency you are using today. Go to motorword.com. That's M-O-T-A-W-O-R-D.com. Motorword.com. And for 10% off your first translation job, use a Better Mousetraps code AMB-2018. Motorword.com. Okay. And today we are coming from the Irvington Hotel in Union Square. Lovely cafe space. So check it out. And we have today with us Zach Woods. Zach, uh, tell us about yourself, please. Happy to do so. Thanks for having me first and foremost, Marcos. Um, Yeah, my name is Zach Woods. Um, Happy New York resident for a little over two years now. Um, I am actually in a transition phase professionally moving from a corporate venture capital and digital transformation role with a large material science company uh, and switching the size of the desk to work for a young San Francisco-based startup company helping lead their enterprise sales. Do you want to name that company now or hold off? Um, The name of the company is Alchemy. Um, You can find them at Alchemy, A-L-C-H-E-M-Y dot cloud. Um, if you're interested to check out a little bit more about the future of chemicals formulation and research and development in large material science companies. Well, that's hardcore uh, intellectual property world. This is not an on-demand app. <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's a fair comment. And yeah, it's, it, you, you haven't asked the question, but I believe that uh, it is one of the biggest challenges that an organization like Alchemy will face is that the nature of that business and the nature of that cell uh, is very much so a partnership and trust-based cell. You're dealing with, uh, we call it the family jewels of the organizations that you work with, and uh, you need to first and foremost guarantee that security and trust is the foremost of your business, but I I also think that that proposition happens a lot more swiftly and more broadly, not just speaking about myself and my role. I think that always happens faster when you have an actual value proposition and you can help these large companies, big or small, um, innovate faster. Okay, and that gets us to the basis of our discussion today, which is it's a broad one, which is innovation. So let's start right off with a definition. What kind of innovation are we talking about? Oh my gosh. Uh, I think it's a great question. Uh, innovation referring specifically to uh, alchemy or referring more broadly in the, in the world? Let's, let's bite off a whole lot and see if we choke or not. And what, what are people talking about? Uh, let's narrow it into in, in startup and corporate world. When they talk about innovation, are they talking about something a completely brand new blue sky? Are they talking about um, assembling off-the-shelf services and products in new ways to create value? What, what's the range that falls under that 
grandiose category innovation? Yeah, you know, to, to answer your question in a couple of ways, I think number one, you, you touched on a couple of definitions and the funny, thing about, uh, the funny thing about the word is each of those definitions is correct. Um, innovation, depending on which organization that you speak to, um, whether it's, uh, let's say, a large automotive like a Ford, for example, um, moving into the mobility space and trying to define themselves as a mobility player and not as an automaker, I think that's innovation. Um, or whether it's Uber, who, of course, was the reason that Ford is now trying to become a mobility company, branching into the freight industry and cargo carrying industry. So what I would say for Uber's case, right, they're, they're simply taking a service that they apply to individuals like Marcos and Zach um, to allow them to pick up, uh, pick up a ride around New York or Times Square or wherever they might be. And now they apply those same exact things to the trucking industry for matching freight to cargo. Um, more broadly speaking, I think innovation is partly a misnomer for a lot of the things that are being done. I think a science-based a science -based company would refer to innovation as a, a new molecule or a new invention that, uh, that has been created and goes through all of the patent work that those companies so firmly prize themselves on. Um, and, and then for a, a smaller company, let's say, uh, uh, oh, sorry, yeah, so... Pitney Bowes is, a, is another great example of innovation, a company that realized, wait a minute, we, we don't have to just be an ink and paper company. We can actually run data on the way offices are interacting with our products and then ser serve and sell that data to architects so that they can design better buildings. Um, that's also innovation from two very large companies. Right, yeah. But Pitney Bowes uh, had a lock for many years on the market for um, um, postage, their postage meters in-house. If you wanted to, to mail something, you bought a Pitney Bowes machine and subscribed to have X number of dollars on that machine that you could then issue postage with. The original subscription economy. <laughs> and Actually, I'd say, you know, quite the, if they were doing that today, they would be, they would be glorified for their forethought um, of finding consistent revenue. Now, I, I think there's a small asterisk there that they were, of course, charging you a, a one-time $100 fee, and there was a limited amount of consumption that could happen. Um, but if you look at a company like Spotify, or actually most recently uh, Lyft, I think, has announced that they're going to provide a all-you-can-eat or all-you-can-drink or all-you-can-ride monthly subscription fee. So uh, maybe Pitney Bowes should uh, get with the Harvard Business Review and see if they can scare up, uh, scare up a cool news story. I'm going to have to look into that Lyft subscription idea, see how that compares to the cost of mass transit. Yeah, I, I think... Anyone that's familiar with, I, I can only speak to the New York subway system in this case, but anyone familiar with the New York subway, they, they know that that all-you-can-ride idea has existed quite some time. Um, now, it's not an app-based experience, but uh, yeah, you could years and years ago buy a monthly pass to ride on the metro and all-you-can-ride, all-you-can-ride, which I think is, it, it's, it's sort of an interesting aside that 
people somehow perceive a, a monthly pass from Lyft as being some really new novel invention. And I would say, no, the novel invention is the delivery of that experience, um, which is via an application that gives you push notifications uh, powered by a company like, you know, SendGrid or, uh, or any of these other infrastructure companies. But the New York Metro System, a state-sponsored entity, has been offering the same idea just with a physical card that you had to run through a machine. So the, the thing has existed for quite a long time, but people's perception is far different when it's delivered in a beautiful, easy-to-interact-with, easy-to-understand fashion. Okay, jumping back to uh, innovation, let's... Uh, let's uh chew on this bone a bit more uh, and look at the differences between innovation that takes place within a corporation and at the startup level. Well, first of all, what's been your experience professionally uh, in either? Yeah, so I, I've had a pretty unique experience in terms of the way that a large, I would say traditionally uh, conservative organization has come to define the way that they interface with their own innovation. What is innovation for a large material science company? Some people might say, yeah, innovation for a large material science company is new materials, right, or new molecules. And I, I think that f in a, to a large extent that is true. Um, there are very, very many people within that organization and within other organizations of that class that still consider innovation as new materials or molecules. But there are definitely a, a subset and a growing subset uh, of people, and I've seen this both from my experience within the digital transformation unit of the organization as well as within the venture capital group of the company, where they're starting to realize that these asset light innovations are really an advantageous way for them to monetize consumers. Data is, I think, what do they say? Data is the currency of the 21st century is a saying I've heard before. And I think it's the new oil. <laughs> data is the new oil. I'm sure there's a lot of very, very cool, uh, very cool expressions about data. I, I, I think, you know, my own personal belief is simply amassing data with no real direction or purpose is is a boondoggle. So maybe that's a new word for a lot of people. But it's been a tried and true model, though, especially in on the West Coast, where companies will say, "We've got this fantastically large user base with all this data." sell their company and go, you'll figure out how to monetize it. Yeah, I would actually, I wouldn't disagree with you. I would simply say that those revenues or, or those data are monetizable data, right? So if we take the Facebook example, I think that's a, an example that many people listening probably know about, right? They they don't directly attain information from you that is, you know, this is how much Marcos is worth, right, per his usage of Facebook. However, the metrics that you produce on a platform like Facebook, when Facebook takes that data and then sells it to advertisers, for example, they, they believe and have drawn correlation between your likes, quite literally your likes, your lack thereof, the things you don't like on the page, your comments, the friends that you have, that there is a certain value in terms of the insights they can gain from your activity on the page. And I, I guess my point was more to the simply aggregating data that doesn't have a proven market 
And I think Facebook is also a great example of maybe the marketplace isn't so amazingly profitable for the advertisers that are buying the data from Facebook. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, I'm not a, I'm not a stock analyst, uh, big, big disclosure there, but I think Facebook has seen quite a decline in their value in the last three to four weeks, and one of those reasons could be, right, a failing failure to continue to grow the user base. I guess when you have 1.5 billion people on a platform, growth is tough. Uh, it's, a, it's a sixth of the world. Um, but maybe there's also some advertisers that are realizing that they could put their money somewhere else uh, and get a little bit more bang for their buck on other platforms that are more nascent and growing. Yeah, we'll see. I think part of that, certainly in, in the last few weeks, has to do with all of the negative publicity surrounding Facebook's behavior. Uh, so th that in and of itself can be a disincentive for advertisers to want to put their money there, irrespective of the efficacy of those ads. Yeah, would, would completely agree, would completely agree. And, and touching, you know, maybe while we're hovering on the topic of Facebook, I, I think uh, a company, and maybe to tie this back into some of my own experiences, a company that, in my view, has really, through their willingness to, I think their willingness to own that they don't know everything and their willingness to purchase companies um, has been one of a really great case study in a business that understands that startups, just as just like large incumbents, which Facebook has been for quite some time, are also really creating a lot of value in the marketplace. I think their, their acquisition of Instagram some years back continues to illustrate that Mark Zuckerberg, like a lot of CEOs that I think have quote unquote gotten it in the last number of years, they, they recognize that even if a team, and I think the numbers and, you know, please let's double check these and we could add a, add a side comment if they're not totally accurate, but I think Instagram had 13 employees when it was purchased for a billion dollars by Facebook. Many people don't know that, right? And, and I think if, if going back to, to my space, right, in the material science world, if if material science companies began to look at organizations of a size of 15 and smaller as viable partners or viable innovation co-creators or viable acquisition targets, the definition of what is innovative and what is not will rapidly change much faster than I think it is currently in some of those more static physical businesses. Yeah, and that, that brings me to the uh, podcast that Prior to our uh, recording this morning, I mentioned the uh, A16Z, the Andreessen Horowitz uh, episode that had uh, Stephanie Cohen, Chief Strategy Officer of Goldman Sachs. She was talking about their innovation the processes where they um, have a program called Accelerate, where they ask their employees to come up with suggestions for ideas. They were floored at receiving a thousand ideas that they winnowed down to 10 that they actually funded uh, based on their perceived value and the fact that those ideas could only be generated by people who intimately knew their business. Sure. And um, that, that's an important source for startups. But she also went on to recognize that some things had to be done externally. So they, they both are developing um, 
new services, new companies internally, and acquiring them ex externally, um, sometimes um, for the standalone product and sometimes for the team, for the, the, uh, the so-called aqua hires. Yep. Um, and so it, it seems like they're, they're being pretty nimble in how they approach uh, trying to stay ahead or in the lead uh, in the innovative curve. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I think it, it illustrates, uh, you, you touched on a lot of topics there, so we'll try to unpack some of those things. But the first comment I would make is, you know, Goldman Sachs is, is being so nimble and so innovative, both looking at internal innovation as well as external or disruptive innovation, as sometimes it's called. Uh, I think they're being so for one very, very clear reason, that they're in an extremely competitive marketplace with a lot of nimble competition, both large and small, that are playing in their space. I, I think you know a lot of people that are listening would, would have heard the term fintech, uh, fintech being financial technology innovation. And it is a tried and true space where the, the large investment banking institutions, and not just investment banks, commercial banks or lending banks, they, they face a massive disruption in my opinion, where organizations, I take a great company like TransferWise, uh, TransferWise, an Estonian-based company or, or originally founded in Estonia, and they, they simply eliminated the, the middleman, which were these institutional banks, to be able to move large amounts of capital between international domiciles. So I lived in Germany and, and Mexico for different periods of time in my previous role, and I needed to transfer money. So I could either work with I could either work with Goldman Sachs or I could work with another large lending institution to move that money at a significant fee, or I could work with an online service that I could go to and say, I want to move $3,000 from here to there to pay my rent. Um, I, I make that point because I think that it's one of the reasons why I see that companies like Goldman Sachs, companies like uh, uh, you know, Bank of America with their, their creation internally of Zella, um, which is a, a payment solution similar to Venmo, but on a more institutional level. Um, the reason these companies are doing this is not just because it's fun and they have the money. The reason they're doing this is they truly have an impetus to innovate. They have a reason where they can look around the world and say, wait a minute, uh, Alipay in China is the largest financial institution that exists, period. And that's an internet-born product and a payment infrastructure from Alibaba. Um, so I, I think it illustrates why, and maybe that's important to understand, is why are these companies doing it? And why do companies maybe in the material science space or maybe in the larger infrastructure space like a Ford or a Toyota, why do they seem to be a little slower on the uptick for innovation? And I think the reason why is not that they don't have smart people, it's that they don't have the burning pressure inside of their company to look outside of the windows of that tall office building and to see five companies that have popped up in the last four, four weeks that are making automobiles, for example. But with the onset of Uber and Lyft and Bird scooters and Lime scooters, which- And I'm, Tesla. <laughs> and Tesla, I, I had a great Lime experience this past weekend in Nashville. It's now very clear to the board of Ford and to the shareholders of Ford that, wait a minute, we need to do something about this. Whereas I think to the board of Goldman Sachs, it's been more clear for a longer period of time because 
the financial institutions were to a certain extent being disrupted. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, the, the, uh, the mobility space as it's now being called uh, in New York City, uh, there will be an interesting, interesting test case. Uh, I had the good fortune last week of being the moderator of a panel on the coming reconstruction of the L train. Oh, wow. And I was speaking with um, somebody from the MTA uh, who was involved in their digital work and a Brooklyn councilman who's the head of the L train coalition. And it was not an acrimonious by any means. <laughs> as, as one would uh, expect. Yeah, yeah, it could have been. Uh, even the audience was, was pretty constructive. Um, but it's interesting how they're approaching it and how they are open to multiple solutions. Uh, and I, I can guarantee that private business is going to take this as an opportunity for moving people from a, an underserved uh, location to a location in the, um, the MTA where they can get to where they're going. So the scooters and the uh, ride-sharing, ride sharing, uh, all of these are going to take it as an opportunity and it's going to accelerate those businesses um, in those areas where they wouldn't have had the impetus to, to innovate. Oh, completely agree. Completely agree. I, as a, as a, a soon-to-be victim of the so-called L-pocalypse, um, I, my girlfriend and I are actually moving from Bushwick to, uh, to Carroll Gardens because of the L. So I, I know the story well, and you, you could not be more right. Um, in, now, what I think is interesting, it, when we were looking for you know, alternative places to live, we, we did not consider that, wait a minute, well, there will be this large influx of private options right, that give you the ability to move about along the path of the L line while the L line is down. And I think maybe to just kind of noodling around on the idea a little bit, I, I think, you know, maybe those companies have failed to a certain extent to capitalize on the opportunity to publicize what they plan to do. If they have a plan to compensate or offset the downfall of the L train and they're not communicating it, <laughs> to the people that are living on the L train that are moving, right? They're, if you will, a market is moving away that could have been captured by them and their service. Um, so maybe a missed opportunity for those companies. But w what I will also say is, you know, I, again, thinking a little bit outside the box here is one of the reasons why the L train going down is such a major problem. Um, and yes, there are alternatives like Bird Scooter or Lime Bike or Uber or the next van sharing company that you and I might start after this podcast is the reason the subway works is because there is no traffic on the subway. It's very safe. I don't have to pay attention. I can sit down, the doors close, and I ride to my destination with very little thought. And while there are alternatives that can get you from A to B, I think the people that remember the L, right, remember the Alamo, uh, they, they will think, yes, I'm on a cool lime scooter, but now the chance of me breaking a leg going to work is way, way, way higher 
And it'll be an interesting test to see if the experience of getting to use an app to check out a scooter will overcome the convenience of riding a train and seeing how many people will say, mm, I'd rather ride the train. I'm moving. I don't care about the private options. I'm going to somewhere else where there's an F train, for example, in my case. Yeah, uh, staying a little longer on this specific L train problem. suggested that the problem, he framed it wonderfully, which is that of a load balancing question. So if, you, if, if You enter, you, you, you use, and say, I'm going to work today. It knows where you're starting from. It knows where you're going. It knows your preferred mode of transportation. And now, in real time, it understands that your preferred mode of transportation and incentivize the user to balance the load in underutilized transportation resources and away from those where there are bottlenecks. So those, that, that kind of framing yeah. was quite interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a great idea. I, I, I can't say I, I feel a little stupid that I haven't considered more about the apocalypse, again, given that I'm going to fall victim to it. But yeah, I, I think this is these types of mentalities, right? It's the right way that people should be thinking about it because whether it's good or bad, I'm, I'm not here to advocate of if it's good or bad or not. Or not. But what I, what I do think is these incentive-based structures that companies like Lyft or Uber have brought in, um, they're not going anywhere. They're not going anywhere. So having the MTA and other private businesses think about well, how do I incentivize Marcos? How do I incentivize Zach to make a, an optimized for the community, a greater good decision? I need to incentivize this person. Or maybe I, I should be more clear, I need to communicate and inform this person. So I think the skeptic may look at it and say, I need to incentivize them. What I would say is, well, now I just feel I'm being informed. The, the dollar off the coffee, while you know, people may say that was the reason I did it, what if you didn't offer me a dollar off the coffee, but you still communicated to me that I would arrive 15 minutes faster by taking mode B instead of mode A or my preferred mode of transport? Do you think that, um, that corporates are generally successful at um, innovating internally or uh, successfully acquiring. M&As always have a bad reputation of, of uh, how well they integrate companies. And uh, you know, you're looking at AOL, Time Warner. Yeah. <laughs> as, I, I as think the they changed their name now. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, 
I just, as much as I wish I could paint with a really broad brush and say, yes, uh, you know, mergers and acquisitions as a class are a failure or a success. Um, corporate innovation as a department of a company is a failure or a success. I, I simply can't. Um, there, there is not a one-size-fits-all solution. If there were, then everyone would do what Goldman Sachs was doing because they're the perennial investment bank in the world, and voila, the world would be perfect. You know, monkeys would be swinging from trees with bananas and, and smiling. It would be awesome. I, I don't think that's the case. I think, fortunately, right, for those that like to dig, um, you got to dig a little deeper into the topic and really investigate what successes are these companies having with their innovation efforts? What is, what is definitely the case, what I've seen from my work, is large corporates are not just paying lip service to the idea of innovation. Um, they have not been paying lip service to the idea of innovation for a very long time. I simply think that riding on the backbone of digital technology that large corporates that in the past considered innovation a piecemeal or stepwise change or, or increase in their core business are now looking to leverage digital infrastructure and digital technology in a way that for them is truly disruptively innovative, where they don't just say, going again back to my roots, we're a chemicals and a molecules company. We have to create a new chemical or a new molecule to innovate. Um, they are realizing if I can use technology in a digital sense, be that sensor technology or, or be that you know, some software program, an app incentivizing users or, or buyers to defend and add value to the molecules and formulations that I create, that's also a piece of my business that I should defend. Um, but going back to your question, I mean, maybe I'll, I'll use an example. I, I think there's, there's a really, for me, a really great example of a merger and acquisition from a company called PTC. Uh, many people will say, hey, PTC, who's that? It's a Fortune 500 company uh, headquartered in Needham, Massachusetts. It's soon moving to the downtown uh, harbor in Boston. And, and they've, they've acquired four organizations in the past six or seven years and in those five or six years of mergers and acquisitions have built the most rapidly growing sustainable or likely to be sustainable and beachhead business line in their entire company um, and they were a digital first company they they were originally helping engineers create uh, parametric models so parametric technology corporation was the name. What are those? Um, so 3D models in a very simple way. So when you're, uh, when, when you're an engineering firm and you need to, for example, create a new BMW Model 3, um, the first step in that is going to be to digitally model that Model 3. Um, or the yeah the the three series you're going to digitally model it you're going to then run simulations of environmental conditions on that 3D model so that without having to physically construct a car you can simulate what the real world will afflict on the vehicle um, and what they've done is quite frankly I think very amazing but to to come to the point they've recognized that. They have to acquire the technologies in the stack that they don't have because building that internally um, was preventatively slow for them. 
Um, whereas maybe to your point about Goldman Sachs, they recognize, wait a minute, we, we need the people that have a core understanding of our business, who better than our own employees, to create these ideas themselves. Um, but they're also looking at the external world as well through, I'm sure, uh, a, a robust program oriented toward startup collaboration. I, I'm assuming I would be shocked if they didn't have their fingers in many of the accelerator programs that are running around New York City and in other tech hubs around the world. Um, and it, again, it's not just lip service and Ford being a mobility company is not just lip service. It's truly the way that they see the future of their company, whether they will be successful in the pursuit of realizing that future or not, it's obviously yet to be determined, but, but whether the value is being created through becoming a mobility company rather than the way that the world looks at this as an asset-heavy infrastructure company. You, you have a very expensive production unit. You have a very expensive product that you sell. Um, and your ways of monetizing on that in a world where people are buying less cars is, uh, is, is har far harder to find. So we have to create new things, and that comes through mergers and acquisitions, incubating ideas internally as well as working with acceleration groups externally to be able to find those breakthrough innovations. That was quite a lot. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it's interesting, yes. Committing, committing the resources, the vast resources uh, in the old style of a, uh, a car manufacturer now, it, it makes sense that they need to do diversify uh, even if they are going to continue building cars and hoping that those cars uh, are attractive to enough consumers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's, you know, I was listening to, you know, you, you listened to a podcast earlier, and I think if you're recording one, you have to have listened to one earlier. That's the rule. But I, I listened to one not so long ago where I think it was uh, Stephen Dubner from Freakonomics Radio interviewed the now CEO of Ford. And we've been talking a lot about Ford, and we can, uh, we can change to another company if you'd like. But he, he made a great point, and, and I do think it's a point that the, the incumbent organizations that are the powerhouses today, you know, from shipping and manufacturing and cars to pharmaceuticals and chemical production, they, they have something that the Googles and the Ubers don't inherently have, and that is the ability to create data in the asset itself. They own the asset. And can, can you... Can you uh Expand on that. What do you mean by that? Sure. Um, so maybe I'll, you know, maybe get away from Ford, right? I, I'll, I'll talk about a production company, a, a production company like, um, like the one that I've recently left, or maybe a BASF or a Dow DuPont. You know, these companies are the companies that create and own the data. They manufacture goods. They have the sensors connected to the production assets that are saying your, your valve is running hot, your throughput of your steam or the throughput of your electricity is running at the proper voltages or the proper, uh, the proper emission rates, you're producing or not producing too much CO2 emissions, whatever the case might be. And the, where I'm going with this is Google is an aggregator of information that's being produced fundamentally on the internet. 
on the web, right? Google's, Google's data is your thumb clicks. Um, a company like BASF's data is its own production assets producing goods. Ford owns the car that you've manufactured. So when Ford wakes up and says, we should start putting sensors into the vehicle itself, and especially in a world, and, and this is way beyond my pay grade, uh, in a world of autonomous vehicles, who will be the companies that control the production of the data? There will be way more data created by the car than there will be by the person that may not even be driving the car any longer. And ideally, they wouldn't be creating data while driving the car anyway because they should be driving and not looking at their phone. And what I mean by that is I think there's a lot of leverage capability for a company like Ford or a company like BASF or uh, you know, even the company that manufactures the, the glassware that we're sipping our tea from when they begin embedding sensing technology into the products that you use, you no longer are needed in the production of the data via your cell phone. They are helping aggregate and produce that data themselves. And then to the point that we made way earlier in the conversation, creating ways to monetize that data. No different than Facebook has figured out how to monetize my interest in American apparel and fancy arm jewelry. This is a very, very scary topic. I'm about to go and go to an undisclosed location that <laughs> Dick Cheney himself doesn't even know about and hide in a cave. Is, is because there... we're, we're, we're talking really about, um, and, and I don't think we're going to go down this path too greatly because that would be a, a separate podcast or two. Um, we're talking about IoT and right. data. We're talking about... Um, which leads to edge computing, because especially in autonomous cars, you can't have the latency of information traveling to a centralized location in order to make decisions as to whether to zig left or zag, or zag left uh, as the other car makes those same computations. Yep. In, in those cases, uh, the, uh, the, the throughput rate of, of data is literally life or death. But also the, the scary part is as you, as you point out, who owns that data and who regulates how that data may be used. So the, the, those are immense, immense Absolutely. topics that we as a society um, and at, at the legislative level have yet to even really begin to, to yeah. grapple with. Europe is a little bit ahead of us with a, uh, the GDPR. GDPR, right, thank yeah. you. I was, yeah, but that, we, 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 have to, we have to get on the stick and, and start to address that. Yeah. We've, I, I mean, the, the, curves, the curves are staggering. I, I mean, if you, anyone, anyone that wants a, a really crazy visual, have, have a very quick look on growth in data creation last 50 years. It's very, very easy. Go to Google, growth in data creation last 50 years. I, Moore's law be damned. Uh, there, there, is a, there is an exponential to, to a factor of, you know, a, a number much larger than two uh, at the rate data is growing. And um, I, I truly believe the reason that governments have not made this much more addressed and more proactively addressed is, is a couple reasons, right? One is we've never faced this challenge before. 
We've never had exponential growth rates in our data until the last 10 to 15 years. Now, we've, of course, been creating a lot more data than we ever were in the past. Um, and maybe coming back to our point about uh, corporate innovation, right, the, the original framework of the topic, uh, I think there's a, a non-staggering fact that very large institutions and organizations oftentimes react much slower uh, and with much, much more intentional behavior um, because they have way more stakeholders and way more to lose um, from a glasses half full perspective. They also have much more to gain because of the position that they have. But the government of the United States, just like the government of the European Commission or any other government, they're also an organization that also has innovation challenges. And when the outside world, the private companies like the Ubers and the Lyfts, the public companies like the Fords, the Apples, the Goldman Sachses, uh, those, those companies are moving at a rate that may be faster than the government of the United States because it is the largest employer in this entire country. So to expect that they would move and adopt at the rate that uh, a team of 13 people that build a really cool photo sharing application uh, and are later bought by it for a million dollars by Facebook, um, it's, it's an unrealistic expectation. However, it doesn't mean that we being individuals with an innovation mindset or, or an aptitude toward innovation or an interest in the topic should sit back and say, oh, well, the government will figure it out. Perhaps the government uh, has already, actually, I have to note, um, during Obama's administration, but can continue to innovate and disrupt itself to be able to create more dynamic ways of creating policy and hopefully bring those speeds of innovation and the needs of the people more closely in line with the time frames that the innovations are happening in the private sector. Well, I, I don't think anyone would disagree that the Obama administration considered that a greater priority than today's administration. We'll just, we'll just leave it at that. I, I, I will let you go on record with that. Um, I, I can't comment. I, I think the Obama administration, um, in, in terms of its policy toward innovation and, and creation of new ideas and services, it, it was uh, part of the zeitgeist, right? It was, it was not simply a function of Obama's personal interest. Um, I think it was also a part of his recognizing that the outside world is changing and dynamically so, and at a rate that he's no president that was sitting in term had ever seen, and he acted accordingly. Um, yeah, and I, I truly don't know enough. I wish I did know more about uh, our current president's policies toward creation and, and innovation that, uh, that I would be able to comment, but I simply can't. Okay, I'll, I'll take that not-so-difficult <laughs> stand, which is it's not as great a priority for him. He's much more interested in protecting incumbent industries, legacy industries, and that uh, the innovative ones uh, take a back seat to those priorities. Yeah. And, you know, maybe, I, again, this is not a, not a political podcast, but I, what I will say, and, you know, this is Zach coming from a, from a large conservative traditional industry. The, the chemicals industry is one of the oldest actually established industries in, in the world today. And I, I do think, I, I, do I think that government subsidies and, or a resistance to allowing smaller firms to be able to innovate is needed? I certainly don't believe that. But, but I do believe that making sure that the companies that are incumbent in an industry have access and the opportunity to be able to 
modernize themselves, not for the sake of profiteering, but for the sake of public safety, for the sake of public health, are able to leverage new and innovative technologies that allow them to produce more effectively, produce more safely, produce in a more environmentally environmentally friendly way. Maybe a, a, an environmental angle on Ford, right? We talked a little bit about the IoT earlier. I, I think it's critically important that companies like Ford would leverage the Internet of Things, put sensors on their vehicles to be able to, in real time, offer information about the pollutants that that vehicle is putting out into the environment. That's a great use case for IoT. Uh, it's not all uh, app notifications and, and Tinder swipes. You know, Some of it is you can really leverage these technologies to offer more real-time information and transparency to the consuming public. Should I buy a Ford or not? Maybe if Ford puts sensors on the vehicle that allow me to know how environmentally sustainable I am at any given time, maybe that's a, a motivator to buy. Um, maybe VF, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Volkswagen wouldn't be in the, the pickle that they continue to be in uh, had, had that been part of their, uh, their manufacturing process to, to verify what their diesel emissions were or were not. Yeah, in, in real time. And it, it's a great example, right? You, I, I think the days of the, I, I don't know who's a muscle car enthusiast. My dad would be proud right now. But the, the days of the dyno, the, the dyno machine, which is, if any of you have ever watched a hot rod show or, or are a fan of NASCAR motorsports, um, you, you put the car on basically a, a, a vehicle-sized treadmill, and you allow it to run, right? How fast can it go? How quickly can it accelerate? The, the days of needing that large infrastructure, and I think the VW case is a really good, good example, the days of needing that are over. You can monitor in real time an entire fleet of vehicles and not send five cars to the dyno machine in some testing facility of the government run those five cars that may or may not be configured to offer higher or lower emissions rates than they actually do, and then the entire fleet of, let's call it, five million vehicles is passed. Why don't we have real-time monitoring on all five million cars, and then when the standard deviation of any of those groups of products start to move beyond an accepted bell curve of you know, the tolerance level, then we recall that subset of vehicles. But that's a very real application of IoT and the way that those auto manufacturers interface with government institutions um, on environmental policy, for example. Yep, yep. So wrapping it up, any overarching thoughts? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sad about the apocalypse. I, I didn't think that was going to be my overarching thought. But your, but your solution of moving to Carroll Gardens guarantees that, that you will be near transportation that you can rely on, barring any uh, apocalypse for the R-Train. Yeah, the, the, F, the F-pocalypse would, would really bring a, bring a cold winter. Um, you know, maybe a, a broad statement, right, I, I, as, as kind of a challenge to the listeners or, or you know, a piece of, a piece of homework, um, Marcos asked a question, which was, you know, can you say that uh, M&A as a wholesale is a bad idea or a good idea or that corporate innovation is, is a success or a failure. I, I would really say, you know, try to, 
try to dig in a little deeper past the jargon of, of quote-unquote innovation or quote-unquote digitalization and really start to look in a little bit deeper under the covers of what companies like HBO are doing when they do an M&A transaction. Uh, the, the great thing about the, this information is a lot of it's public. When a company is purchased, especially if a, a public company that's traded on the S&P 500 is purchasing or acquiring another organization, um, many of the documents that support why they are doing this have to be shared with the shareholders of the company, which are public shareholders. Um, another great piece of research to do, and I, I really uh, would have never known this if it weren't for the guys over at Acquired FM, which is a great podcast being hosted by a couple of guys out in Seattle and San Francisco, respectively. But um, read the S1 filings, which are the IPO filings of these mega startups that turn IPO. Um, these are tremendously informative documents that I believe really encapsulate in detail, which unfortunately is what you're going to have to do if you want to understand this and not just listen to Zach and Marcos talk about it for an hour, is read an S1. Re read the reason that Snapchat went, or Snap Inc., went public and why they think it was a good idea. I, unfortunately, I think the public markets think it's a bad idea right now. Um, but there are tremendous examples all over. Google, companies that have IPO'd in the last two years, you can find a number of the companies in the list. Google the S1, S letter, one, the number of that organization, and you can read hundreds of pages about the rationalization of the so-called innovation that they've created um, and why they are selling their innovation in a different type of M&A, which is an IPO. And the public is buying that company now, not another organization. So my, my big thought is dig deep. you got to get past the jargon. I, I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, consultant speak that's thrown around and not enough people really understand the meat and potatoes behind the consultant speak to be able to understand what's really happening. Hard work, but good advice. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, happy to be here. Thank you for the time.